0: Well, good morning, eh? Hey. Spent last week in Canada, learned the language, you know. I wasn't here last week, um, your kindness sent me and my bride of 25 years to the uh, Western Rockies in Canada, these are some pictures from there, I thought you at least deserved that after your kindness. Um, that, that's uh, Moraine Lake, I believe, um, let's see what else we have here. We have a clicker that doesn't work. So I'm going to sync my clicker, which will probably trash your software. Okay, you ready? Ah, that was interesting. There we go. Well, there's another one. Um, Another lake that we got to visit. And I believe you're going to have to advance the slides for me because the clicker is not working. There we go. Just a view of one of the, that's one of the hikes we were on think uh, I have the next slide? You're also going to have to slide over, uh, Derek, so I can see you, because this is not going to work. Yeah, I'll make a gesture like I'm clicking, and you click for me. <laughs> uh, we hiked up high enough to get into snow that was at least knee-deep that turned us around and made us stop uh, the hike at that point in time. And I'm a critter person, so we had to see lots of critters. We had mule deer and um, bighorn sheep which was fun to be able to see and photograph, and uh, black bear, mom and a couple of, of babies out there. But uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful place, and we had a very refreshing, uh, restorative week together, and I can't, um, can't thank you all enough. I think, reflecting back on this, I think if, if someone were to ask me, how do I know God is good, one of my answers would be Northwake. You are one of the great evidences of the goodness of God in my life and in my family's lives, and I am profoundly grateful for it and humbled by it. And I just want to thank you again. Um, but enough enough travelogue. Uh, we want to return this morning to 1 Samuel and our series on seeking God wholeheartedly, lessons from the life of David in 1 and 2 Samuel. And we're in chapter 24 of 1 Samuel this morning. And as you find that, I'd like to pray for our time in the Word together. Okay, let's bow in prayer. Lord God, come now and, uh, and grab our lives by your Word and shake us free from the compromises that rob us of joy and rob you of glory and honor. I pray that the proclamation of your word this morning would by your spirit be made relevant and applicable to every life in this room and in the hearing of this message that you might have your, your great and merciful way with us this morning through your word. So we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay, First Samuel 24. Um, starts this way, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, you remember David's life was spared at the end of chapter 23 because Saul was called off to pursue the Philistines once again, their enemies. But now Saul is told that David is in the desert of En Gedi, so Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. So King Saul, ruling King Saul, is pursuing the anointed and future King David, trying to kill him. Saul, as you remember, has joined the dark side. And now he is committed to killing the man whom God has appointed to be king in his place. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. And David and his men were far back in the cave. And the men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. So you understand the scenario In fleeing Saul, David and his men have hidden in a cave, and Saul comes in, as the King James version says, rendering the Hebrew literally, to cover his feet. Now, there's not like a shoe shop in the cave. Um, Your modern translations are correct. They say he came in to relieve himself, to use the restroom. And David now has served up on a platter from God his enemy. Saul is totally defenseless. You're not exactly battle-ready when you are in the process of covering your feet. Okay? Um, but David, it's fascinating, he does not seize the opportunity. Watch what happens. Uh, David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe, and he said to his men, The Lord forbid... That I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. And then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. This is unthinkable. Military adversaries served up his arch enemy, who's trying to take his life right there, totally defenseless, in front of him, in the cave. And he does not take his life. There is something that is constraining David in an, in an inviolable way. Continues in verse 9, he said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. And now we see the thing that is so constraining David. He is absolutely convinced that it would be wrong for him to harm the Lord's anointed. That that is contrary to the will of God for his life. He says, May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you, Saul, have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the saying goes... From evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. And David is appealing to Saul now to stop chasing him. But his trust is not in Saul's response. His trust is in God for deliverance. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know, Saul says, that you, David, will surely be king. It's a huge admission for Saul. And that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from, your, from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul and Saul returned home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is... This is an amazing thing that Saul says. He has been chasing David, bent on killing him, and now he's brought to the point where he admits that David will be the king in Saul's place. And you have to wonder what pushed him to this point, what brought him to this point of admitting that David would be the king. And Of course it has to do with David's righteous conduct, but there's something more that I think was really just a slap in the face to Saul that made him wake up. And that's the image of David standing there holding a piece of cloth from Saul's robe. I know this had to take Saul back to the last time that his robe was torn. Back in chapter 15, Saul is pleading with the great prophet Samuel. And he says, I beg you, Samuel, forgive my sin. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You, Saul, have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to leave, after prophesying that Saul would lose the kingdom, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors. To one better than you. So now here stands a man that Saul has just said, You are more righteous than I. What is he holding in his hand? The hem of Saul's robe. And Saul realizes this is the fulfillment of the prophecy. That David is the one better than he. Whom the kingdom has been torn away from Saul and given to David. This is an amazing story. But what makes it even more fascinating to me is if you'll flip over one page in your Bible and look at chapter 26, it's almost a do-over. The, the same scenario plays out again in a slightly different setting. In chapter 26, those Henri Ziphites who betrayed David once before now go to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding out on the hill of Hakila, which faces Jeshimon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph. This is unbelievable. Saul has acknowledged David is to be king. He has told him that God is going to bless him, and now he's still pursuing him, trying to take his life. So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hakila, facing Jeshimon, but David stayed in the desert. And when he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely... Arrived. And David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner son of Nair, the commander of the army, had lain down, and Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. And David then asked Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai son of Zariah, Joab's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? So David's looking for a volunteer to go with him by nightfall right into Saul's camp. I'll go with you, said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by night and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the other soldiers were lying around him and Abishai said to David, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Does that sound familiar? It's, It's the same as the previous chapter. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I will not strike him twice. This is a huge, it has to be a huge deja vu experience for David. Once again, Saul is given over to him in a state of complete vulnerability. He is sound asleep on the ground with a spear right by his head. And David is standing there with Abishai. Once again, he hears the voice of his men urging him to take Saul's life. And once again, um, David refuses. David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. David, David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the hill some distance away, and there was a wide space between them. And he called out to the army and to Abner, son of Nair, Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? And Abner replied, Who are you? Who calls to the king and David said, you're a man, aren't you? It's a little bit of a taunt from David. You're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard your Lord the king? Someone came to destroy your Lord the king. What you have done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men deserve to die because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed. You sense the depth of David's conviction about the Lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and water jug that were near his head? And now he turns and speaks to Saul. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is that your your voice, David, my son? And David replied, Yes, it is my lord the king. And he added, Why is my lord pursuing his servant? What have I done? And what wrong am I guilty of? Now let my lord the king listen to his servant's words. If the lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. If, however, men have done it, may they be cursed before the Lord. They have now driven me from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, go, serve other gods. Now do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. The king of Israel has come out to look for a flea. Again, language reminiscent of chapter 24, as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. And Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have erred greatly. Here is the king's spear, David answered. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today. But I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, my son David. You will do great things and surely triumph. So David went on his way, and Saul returned home. Once again, Saul is brought to the point of acknowledging David's superior righteousness and blessing the very man he's been seeking to kill. So in these two chapters, they're amazing Similarities. Let me just underscore some of them. In both chapters, Saul is pursuing David. In both, David has a God-given opportunity to kill Saul. In both, David's men urge Saul's death. In both, David refuses to harm Saul. In both chapters, David actually protects Saul from those who would harm him. In both, David takes and presents a physical symbol of the mercy that he has shown to Saul. In both chapters, David speaks to Saul of his innocence and insignificance and laments those who have falsely accused him. In both chapters, he appeals to Saul to call off the chase. And in both chapters, he entrusts his deliverance to God. And I think of great significance, God is at work here in the circumstances of David's life, preparing and positioning David to rule as the anointed king of Israel in Saul's place. It's the Lord who delivered David, or Saul into David's hand. It's the Lord who put the men to sleep. The Lord is sovereignly working, arranging these circumstances. And everybody can see it. David's men see it. They say in chapter 24, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said, I will give your enemy into your hands to deal as you wish. They saw it in chapter 26 when Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. David saw it in chapter 24. He says, some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand. Excuse me, the verse prior is the one I need. This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. In chapter 26, David says, the Lord delivered you into my hands today. Saul himself would say in chapter 24 to David, you have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. Everybody sees God's fingerprints all over this. God has delivered Saul into David's hands. So what is David supposed to do? What should he do? It's obvious. God has set this up. Is this God's provision for David to take out his enemy? Or is it some kind of test? It looks like provision on every front. That's what David's men see. That's what the voices David hears are telling him. Kill him. Kill him. God has given you this opportunity. But there is something constraining David that will not let him follow the circumstances. And it's that unshakable conviction that he must not harm the Lord's anointed. For David... To oppose and harm the Lord's anointed is to oppose the Lord himself. This idea comes out in Hannah's prayer way back in 1 Samuel, the second chapter. And again, it's in Psalm 2, where it says, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. The opposition of the Lord and his anointed is all tangled up together in David's thinking. And David has this clear, unshakable conviction that he must not harm the Lord's anointed and he will not violate this conviction no matter what the circumstances, no matter what his most trusted friends are telling him. I wonder, do you have a conviction like that? A conviction that no matter what the circumstances, no matter what others may say, you will not go there. You will not do that thing or you will not forsake that thing. What things has God spoken and recorded in his book that you simply will never compromise? You've already decided it will never happen on your watch. For David, it was clear he must not harm the Lord's anointed. No exceptions, no matter what. What is that clear to you? You know, it is a horrible time to sort out your convictions in the cave. When the opportunity presents itself and you're trying to figure out, golly, did the Bible really say never? Or was that sort of usually? Is this an exception? You know, you don't sort out your convictions in the cave. What are the convictions that you already hold? When you hear voices telling you, this is God's hand, you can say, no, it's not. Don't dare go there in spite of what it looks like. I mean, if I ask you to flip your worship guide over and write down three absolutely non-negotiable in any circumstance, no matter what anybody says, convictions, what would you write? What would you say, this is what the Bible says, this is what God has said, and I will not violate it? Well, once we get that kind of clarity on what God has, what parameters and perimeter God has set for us that we must not violate, how do you stand up under those circumstances and against those voices that press us to compromise? And I'd like to just underscore from these two chapters in David's life three principles that safeguard his soul from compromise. And the first of those is full submission to the revealed will of God. Full submission to the revealed will of God. That is, you resist the temptation to believe that you are an exception to the rule. An exception to the to the will and the wisdom of God. And we are very, very vulnerable to thinking that we are exceptional, that we are the exception, that the Bible really didn't anticipate the rare circumstance that we now find ourselves in. You know, I still remember a conversation. This has been over a decade ago. I had with a fellow... Who His marriage was dissolving. His wife was involved with another man in in North Carolina. By God's grace, we have this one-year period where you cannot divorce. You have to live separately for a year. And that's a, a great gift that God has providentially given to our state. During that year, he starts dating another woman. While he's still legally married to this, you know, the divorce hasn't even gone through yet. And so I'm talking to him. I'm saying, what are you doing? And he said, Larry, I would never counsel anyone to do what I'm doing, but I'm in in an exceptional circumstance. I'm an exception. And I thought, no, you're a fool. Because when you think that you're outside the will and wisdom of God, that makes you a fool. And you're vulnerable to all the ways and wiles of our adversary, the devil. You are in his playground. So this morning, are you acting like you're exceptional? That your circumstances somehow merit an exception to what God has said? Have you assumed that the alignment of circumstances and your desires are God's provision? Even though they cause you to fudge somewhat on what you know God's good wisdom is and the way you would counsel others. To be an exception to the wisdom of God is to be a fool. Friends, you don't want to be a fool. David knew what was required of him, and he refused to believe that his exceptional circumstances justified an exception to the wisdom of God in his case. He refused to believe that, and he was in full submission to the revealed will of God. The second thing that seems to really safeguard him in these extraordinary uh, pressures that he's facing and opportunities he has to take Saul's life, is the fear of God. It helps David stay firm in his conviction. He's terrified at the idea that he might end up in opposition to God. In verse 26, he says to Abishai, when Abishai says, Look, just once, I'll only have to get him one time. That's all it'll take. He says, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? He's, he's just telling him, you, you're, you're going to end up opposing God. You're going to end up bearing sin. You don't want to go there. It's just not worth it. It's never, ever worth it. David would rather pass up the opportunity of a lifetime twice than risk being at odds with God. It's just not worth it. Now we, scientists tell us, We are the only um, species on earth that has the remarkable abilities that we have for risk assessment. Um, A guy named Jeffrey Kluger in Time Magazine last year wrote and said, but in spite of that, we have a confounding habit of worrying about mere possibilities while ignoring probabilities. He says, for example... We agonize over the avian flu, which, as of December '06, has killed precisely no one in the U.S., but we have to be cajoled into getting vaccinated for the common flu, which contributes to the deaths of 36,000 Americans each year. It says, white-knuckle flyers routinely choose the car when traveling long distances, heedless of the fact that at most a few hundred people die in the U.S. commercial airline crashes in a year compared with 44,000 killed in motor vehicle wrecks. We wring our hands over the mad cow pathogen that might be, but most certainly isn't, in our hamburger, yet worry far less about the cholesterol that contributes to the heart disease that kills 700,000 of us annually shoppers still look askance at the bag of spinach for fear of E. coli bacteria while filling their carts with fat sodden french fries and salt-crusted nachos. He says, We put filters on faucets, install air ionizers in our homes, and lather ourselves with antibacterial soap. And at the same time, 20% of all of us still smoke, 20% of drivers, and 30% of backseat passengers don't use seat belts, and two-thirds of us are overweight or obese. In short, he says... Shadowed by peril as we are, you'd think we get pretty good at distinguishing the risks likeliest to do us in from the ones that are statistical long shots. He says, but you would be wrong. Our risk assessment is at its worst when it comes to the fear of God. We seem to think that it's no big deal to step outside the will of God to get what we think we want. Friends, it's a big deal. It is a huge, stinking deal to step outside of the will of God. One of the scariest chapters in the Bible is Ezekiel chapter 5, where it says in verse 11, Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because you have defiled my sanctuary and all your vile images and detestable practices. In other words, they stepped out of the will of God in the way they worship God. He says, I myself, and this is the scary part, will withdraw my favor. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. And the entire remainder of the chapter is full of these hellacious, horrendous, horrific consequences that come on the people, including the the eating of their own children and places where nobody ever wants to go. Friends, you don't want to stick your big toe outside of the will of God. So are you sure that those circumstances that you're looking at are God's permission and provision and not a test? If they take you outside of His written word, then they are not a green light. They're a red light. Third thing, full submission to the revealed will of God, the fear of God. And the last thing, there's a beautiful complement to the fear of God, is his trust in God. He fears and he trusts in extraordinary ways. In chapter 24, verse 15, he says to Saul, May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider our cause and uphold us. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. He trusts God to deliver. This is one of those chapters in the Bible that has a psalm that's been attached directly to it. Psalm 57 is for the director of music to the tune of Do Not Destroy. It's a psalm of David, and it's written when he had fled from Saul into the cave. So this is written from the cave, evidently, while David is hiding from Saul. And he says, have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. Isn't that beautiful in light of what's going on? Saul and 3,000 elite troops are tracking him and he's hiding. And he says, I will take refuge, not in the cave, God, but in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. Selah. God sends his love and his faithfulness. David trusts God to deliver him. And he trusts his timing, which is very hard for Americans, to trust God's timing. In chapter 26, verse 10, Abishai is about to spear Saul, and David says, As surely as the Lord lives... He said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die or he'll go into battle and perish. In the Lord's time. I, I trust the Lord's time. And as a result of that, he's able to be patient and wait. Also because he trusts in God's judgment. The next couple of verses, he says, may the Lord judge between you and me. This is in chapter 24. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. I will trust God to get it right. God will judge. I'll leave judgment to God. I will not take matters in my own hand. And he trusts God will reward that choice. In chapter 26, verse 23, he says the the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. A universal statement. He says, the Lord delivered you, Saul, into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. David is confident that God will reward the right choice he's making. And it's a promise that's yours and mine as well as David's. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. David's trust in God, along with his fear of God, and his full submission to the revealed will of God, enabled him to stand firm in his convictions. Please understand, favorable circumstances, circumstances that look beneficial to you, are not automatically a green light from God. If they are contrary to the principles of his revealed will in the Bible, they are a big red light. They may be from God, but how you respond has to be determined by what the Scriptures have revealed to you, by those inviolable convictions that you have of places you will never go and things you will never forsake. God is preparing you for His purposes in your life just as He was David. And His tests are part of strengthening you and protecting you. Exodus chapter 20 verse 20. Moses says don't be afraid. God has come to test you. So that the fear of God will be with you. To keep you from sinning. God tests us for our good. That's one of the great purposes of God's tests. To protect us from sin. So. What are your non-negotiable convictions? No matter what the circumstances, no matter what other voices are saying, that you will never embrace or you will never forsake. In closing, I'd like to just lead us in a time of meditation and reflection as we pray together. I'll just read over some questions for you to reflect on before the Lord. And hopefully begin a very meaningful safeguarding of your heart in response to these questions. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, direct our thoughts now as we examine our own hearts. Show us where we must stand and show us where we have compromised that we might stand again. So, this morning, are you laying up treasure in heaven? Are you being content with what you have? Are you jeopardizing that by the things that you are longing for and the things that you are buying? Are you caring for the poor and those in need? Have you made an uncompromising commitment? That's a higher priority than the pursuit of your personal pleasure. Are you loving your neighbors? Or have you made an exception because someone has wronged you? Or you just don't like somebody? Are you guarding your purity? Is there a relationship? Is there a fantasy? Or is there something you're viewing that takes you to the edge of compromise and even beyond? Have you drawn a clear line and said, I will not go there? Are you radically committed to the body of Christ? To true community where you know and are known where you sharpen and are sharpened? Have you allowed something, some fear you have or something that happened in your past to cause you to compromise that radical commitment to the bride of Christ? Are you excusing your anger as exceptional and justified? Letting your affections for your spouse fall far below what Scripture calls you to, becoming dangerously undermined just by the stuff of life. Are you keeping and protecting your marriage vows? Are you ignoring your worries, excusing them as understandable in light of the circumstances? When God Himself has said to cast your cares on Him because He cares for you, is there a business opportunity that's taking you into the gray areas of your integrity or beyond? But it's such a good deal that you're willing to make an exception this one time. willing to compromise your integrity in your studies. Lowering the bar because everyone else does it. Because it's only homework. It's only a quiz. Most importantly, are you opposing God this morning by resisting His great anointed King, Jesus? Why haven't you trusted Him? Father, we need much grace this morning to stand on what we know is true and right, what we have found in your word to be your perfect wisdom and will for us. Give us grace to stand. Lord, we need grace because we've fallen. Compromised. we've rationalized, we've excused, we've explained away our foolish movement outside of your perfect will and wisdom for us. Lord, grant us grace today to forsake our folly and to come back in and stand from this day forward unshakably, whatever the circumstances whatever the voices around us might say. And today as we bow, Lord, many of us are renewing covenants and making promises afresh and anew. Grant us grace by your Spirit and by your people as we find strength in one another and share our convictions and our direction from this day with our friends, our brothers and sisters you grant us the grace we need to be faithful to the convictions you are calling us to this day father i ask this in the powerful and effective and beautiful name of a great anointed king of all peoples jesus the christ